from 11FS, I'm Ross Gallagher and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you, Fiserv acquires first data in a £22 billion deal, but the Fed has reservations about Fintech, and Greg's vegan sausage roll helps its stock rocket on free trade. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 289 of Fintech Insider. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices, which are now in Devonshire Square. My name is Ross Gallagher. I'll be your host for today. And I'm joined by my wonderful colleague and co-host, Sarah Kashansky. Sarah, how are you doing? First podcast of 2019. You know what? It isn't my first podcast of 2019. I did an InsureTech yesterday, and it's my first week back after three weeks away. And I'm, I'm a little bit rusty, so... First week back. Yesterday was your first... Second, my first podcast. First podcast. So you've already yeah. done two so podcasts. I'm, yeah, this is my second podcast. First week back after three weeks away. I'm just going with it. It's the podcast queen. I love it. <laughs> okay, so, and as always, we are not alone, and we are joined by some fantastic guests. On the show today, we have Liana Brinded, head of Yahoo Finance UK. How are you doing, Liana? I'm very good, thanks. Awesome. Great to have you. We also have Lucy Wolfenden, marketing director from Yolt. Hey, Lucy. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. And we have Wincy Wong, Head of Innovation for Supply Chain Services at RBS. Hi, everyone. Such a pleasure to have you guys. Okay, so let's dive right in. Um, Don't forget, if you have any questions for us or a new story you catch you want us to cover, then please do drop us an email at podcast at 11fs.com or find us on social media. Okay, let's get on with this week's news. Our first story comes from MarketWatch. Fiserv has reached an agreement to acquire First Data in an all-stock deal with an equity value of $22 billion. Fiserv shareholders will own 57.5% of the combined entity, while First Data shareholders will own the remaining 42.5%. The deal is expected to boost adjusted per share earnings by more than 20% in the first full year after close. And Jeffrey Yubuki, the chief executive of Fiserv, said... Through this transformative com- combination, we expect to redefine the manner in which people and institutions move money and information. <laughs> Sarah, dive right in. Let's Sorry. pick up on that little snigger. I like it. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Um, I mean, this is this is big news. We talk about mega mergers. This, this is a mega set merger. Twitter alight. It did. Um, with with people on both sides of of, of the fence about which way it's going to go. I mean, basically, payments is a scale game, so you have to be big. Um, this is this is a kind of a whole new level. Well, not a whole new level. We saw Vantiv and, um, and WorldPay do something similar. But for me, the interesting thing here is that it's different parts of, you want to call it the supply chain, I suppose. Yeah. So you've got core banking, you've got payments processing, and they've become a mammoth. Now, that could go one or two ways, right? It could be we've got the scale, we've got access into all these different, not only banks, but technologies. You know, they, they run Clover, which is First Direct. Uh, First Direct? No, first data. First data. First, data. Um, first data's mobile point of sale. They work with Zelle, which um, is yeah, that the, com- that competes with the likes of Square and has customers like Walmart and yeah. Lyft. I mean, they they have fingers in many many pies. Um, the interesting thing to me is they talk about you know all these savings they're going to make and all the extra revenue they're going to make, but how like if 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 oil tankers take years to turn. How long is it going to take two oil tankers to turn? How long is it going to take them to actually merge before they're actually up and running to be able to do anything? Is my question on this one. I think. 
I always think when when it comes to those uh, kind of scale of companies, the thing is it takes so long, it takes years. But then at the same time, from the outside point of view, from maybe whether it's the end consumer or investors, is that is that they almost want to see um, changes and their integration straight away. Like one year is too long, two years is way too long. But in fact, it really does take about, I would say, about five years to truly integrate two massive, as you say, oil tankers to actually make some meaningful merging in order to grow that revenue and change but yeah I think that's completely right and it'll be really interesting to see because they've made some big claims like 500 million more profit 900 million in savings but they have got a history of buying up technology and integrating it over the last 20-30 years haven't they and making that work really well for them rather than building it from scratch so I wonder whether they feel they've you know they've done it with smaller with smaller mergers and now let's try the big one. I think what will be interesting to see is whenever you have this kind of merger of these two large corporations is whether or not they can see the wood for the trees in all the stuff that needs to happen to integrate, to actually see the customer on the other end and see how they can actually leverage the capabilities of Pfizer for first data to provide even better service to customers. Yeah, I mean, there's also going to be, I mean, we were actually talking about this on InsureTech this week, but there's going to be like duplication of everything. And if you're particularly, if they're talking about, you know, this this merger is going to help them stand up against the squares of the world and, and you know, all those different innovative fintechs and all the different areas they touch. Um, Fiserv will have millions of innovation hubs, you know, first data will have mil- millions of innovation hubs. That's, you know, those should be the easy ones to merge because they're small teams and agile and nimble. And I bet it'll take them two years to get their acts together. So I am I'm intrigued and it is definitely big news, but um I think exactly as Leanna says, it's gonna be at least 12, 24 months before anything actually meaningful happens here. It's big news and, and I think it's 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 that potential, right? But you know, they talked about the sort of revenue gains and all that potential. Um it's 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 sort of adding I was fanning the flames. None of that's obviously been realized. It's not going to be realized for quite some time. I wonder what what this means from a, almost like a cross-sell play, um, whether they'll be able, you know, Pfizer will be able to cross-sell to First Data's customers and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. Um, I, when I was looking, there was actually a, a Bloomberg piece, which because I, I didn't know much about the previous mergers that you'd mentioned, Lucy. Um, and it actually says that First Data is really like, struggled recently because they did buy a load of companies they got a huge load of debt and they've actually really struggled to do the turnaround on their own so when you looked at the um what happened to the the share price first data rocketed 21 percent and Pfizer dropped i think it was like nine percent or something so um it's kind of almost like one company on the up one company on the down it's fairly classic for a merger but um And, and that digital acquiring space from from first data's perspective is becoming increasingly competitive yeah, I mean, they, they've got competition coming from areas they didn't even know they were going to have competition. So It's usually easy to see when you have a large corporate gobbling up someone small and um, to see how long it takes before that small, agile, nimble company starts getting absorbed, uh, I think, into the Borg, so to speak. And <laughs> but, but I think it'll be interesting to see what happens between Pfizer and First Data over time. I'm just going to put it out there that David Cameron joined First Data's board about 12 months ago. Surprised mm. it wasn't George Osborne. <laughs> <laughs> no, he likes all the jobs, right? And, I mean, everything David Cameron touches turns to gold, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I think my favourite um, my favorite thing to come out of this story was an, a Twitter exchange from our um, head of delivery, Adam Davis. And I think your good self, Sarah... Dear, what did I say? <laughs> well, it was it was it was Adam's quote that I particularly tweets. liked. It said, 
Is this Achilles' last stand, or is big back in vogue in financial services? Yeah, I think I think because I said I said whichever way you look at it, it's big. Um, but I I don't think I was quite as eloquent. Achilles' last stand. Hmm. Or back in vogue. What a lovely, um, like you said, el- eloquent. Um, <laughs> it sounds like I think around the table we're um, we're pretty unanimous on this. But to get a US perspective, we spoke to our MD of America's Sam Mall to find out his thoughts. Let's hear from him now. I mean, damn. It's easily the biggest deal in payments as far as potential impacts across the industry that I can think of in, in quite a while, in, in, in Lord, several years. So think about this. Just in the U.S., Fiserv controls more than a third of the core banking market. They've got over 12,000 financial services clients across 80 countries. Then you, then you take first data, right? They have that massive merchant acquiring presence. They serve, I think, more than 6 million merchants. They have the Clover point of sale device. I mean, this is really, really interesting when you look at this. Um, I'm sure there's some uh, pretty interesting conversations going on in Square offices right now. One thing I immediately did when the news broke was um, I reached out to a few executives at mid-tier banks and small community banks. I wanted to get their reactions, you know, banks that are reliant upon, you know, Fiserv and and First Data for a lot of services. And two community bank presidents that shall rename nameless, um, they provided my favorite quotes, my favorite reactions. So the first was this. This seems insane. Can you imagine if Fiserv put $22 billion into R&D? I can't see this as a good move for them. Being a bigger behemoth in a nimble environment could be detrimental for them. And it just extends our pain of, of touch tech and services and actually getting our voice heard. Maybe Trump should have asked Fiserv to build a border wall. A uh, second bank president uh, that came back to me on this, a smaller community bank. His exact words were this, wonderful, it gets worse for us. The terrorists that hold us hostage are getting bigger. Whatever premium they're paying, I'm sure it'll come out of my hide. So again, their words, not mine. What I'll say is this is going to be an interesting story to watch unfold. One thing I'll add, innovating and integrating at this scale, it ain't easy, folks. It really isn't. Good luck. Meanwhile, in the UK... Atom Bank hires advisors ahead of potential Spanish bids. So this was another big story this week. Atom Bank is in talks to appoint City to advise its board on options for the business. This comes a year after Atom Bank raised almost £150 million from investors led by BBVA, Spain's second biggest lender. Under the terms of its shareholder agreement, BBVA, which owns nearly 40% of the Durham-based digital bank, has an option to acquire the remainder of the shares. And sources close to Atom denied that hiring City represented a sale mandate, although they conceded that either a takeover, further equity fundraising, or stock market listing was likely during 2019. So if BBVA did acquire Atom, it would obviously be the latest big Spanish bank to enter the UK consumer banking market after Santander, Sabadell with some mixed success. Yeah. How do we see this one playing out? I mean, BBVA have very deliberately kept their holding in Atom to the point at which they aren't required to make a bid, but it's close enough so they get first dibs, which I think BBVA have been 
burnt a little bit previously when you look at what happened when they acquired Simple and how that was not, in fact, Simple. Um, and they've done the same thing with, you know, various other acquisitions. They've acquired Holvey and let it run. Yep. Um, I mean, well, clearly, if they've hired City to advise their board, they're doing something. <laughs> I mean, that wouldn't, you know, they haven't denied that. Um, it's interesting to me because Atom have been quite slow moving. Their losses are still big. You know, we've seen Monzo sort of working its way to profitability. We see, um, actually, I don't know about Starling. I couldn't say off the top of my head. But, you know, Atom is still sitting on £53 million pounds worth of losses in the last financial year. Um, and a lot of that is to do with their strategy of, paying out high interest on deposits in order to get the money and to start making the loans. Um, I I suspect that this is actually, Atom haven't moved as quickly as maybe their board would have liked either towards profitability or new products. And this is the result of that. And they're kind of exploring their options. Um, I don't, I don't think BBVA would go for it. I don't know that for a fact, but my gut is that I don't think BBVA would do this. I think we're more likely to see another raise actually. Yeah. I mean, I mean, when, when looking at Atom back and then, um, hiring, well, supposedly hiring the um, city advisors. I mean, I think that's just very clever on their part to be diligent. They're doing their due diligence with people who have been in the sector for decades and decades and need that extra, you know, you know, to get that advice. And they're the best people to do it. Um, in terms of the BBVA part, I think, you know, it's a smart move on them. Like you said, they've been burnt before. And actually, with a lot of of the traditional lenders getting stakes in up-and-coming challenger banks and fintechs, a lot of it is spreading their bets across a lot of players. Not everything's going to play out. Not everything's going to work, and they're not going to make money in each one, but that is why they're doing it. And, yeah, like you said, I mean, with Atom Bank, it hasn't been either the, I suppose, sector or media darling of the likes of Monzo or Starling at the moment. So, really, it's looking likely more of equity fundraising um, well, the other option is, of course, that Will I Am has an option to acquire up to 3.55 million shares in Atom Bank at a price of one pound and fifteen pence during a three-year period. Should he decide to do that, Will so- I Am, friend of the show. Well, can we say that? We can. I was going to make a snarky comment about yeah. that. I was like, no, you are yeah. the best, Will I That's am. That's exactly what I was about to do. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you had a, you had a proper think, point to make. Do. <laughs> well, I think you know, Will I am is obviously a legend in his own right. But it was an interesting, it was an interesting move for them to bring him on because is it, and did they misread the market, and is that why they still haven't actually reached those millennials? Because. Is it still the days where we go and spend a lot of money on big brand ambassadors to bring the audience in? Or is it more about actually listening to the, listening to your audience and the users and what they need? And actually that is better money spent. And I don't know how much, sorry, I don't know how much Will I Am resonates with most millennials in the UK. It feels quite niche. Do you know what I mean? It feels very five years ago, I think. So just, just saying, it's a bit, uh, it's a very friend of the show. I still like watching the boys. It's still going. I think what I, what's interesting is um if you think about when Adam first launched and it was 2016 and that's probably when all the other challenger banks were kind of launching it was kind of an interesting time to see well who would succeed who would you know have better customer acquisition with best customer experience and now a couple of years on we're starting to see that play out seeing which ones at the same time you know there are more and more being flooding the market yeah. um, as it is so it uh, I, I kind of well I don't know what BBVA is thinking uh, at all but I would suspect they might want to hold as well just to see how the market plays out yeah yeah I think one of the criticisms of Atom has typically been that it's prioritize maybe style over substance 
Um, and I think they've gone back to basics a little bit. You know, they recently launched their, um, their kind of tying up with, uh, with Thought Machine from a core banking perspective. You know, I mean, they've actually very quietly gone about building up 1.6 billion in, in customer mm. deposits. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out very quickly because I don't want to dwell on the B word. How, what role is, <laughs> is Brexit likely to play in this, um, potential takeover bid from BBVA? I don't think it would make much difference to them. I mean, it would. I don't think that they would be like, we're not going to buy Atom because of Brexit. I think there are much bigger concerns where BBVA is concerned in its acquisition portfolio. I mean, it doesn't hurt them to have, as we've said, fingers in every pie. And if that pie happens to be the other side of a customs trade union, um, <laughs> that's yep. not the end of the world for them. Yeah. Um, oh. oh, no, I was just going to say, I suppose it's a shortcut to, li- to UK licence. Yes, but that would true. be the and looking at what I suppose it's what could they get from Atom and it's usually either a license or infrastructure or brand equity. So is it the license that they, is it the license that they need first? Yeah. I, I mean, when it comes to Brexit as well, I think what we've been seeing, especially with the fintech industry, that that you know, I suppose you know, the bonus, the joy of being up and coming and being part of fintech is being a lot more nimble and not having, I suppose, lots of uh, legacy and huge sprawling infrastructures that would automatically be hurt with Brexit, whatever deal comes out of it. So as we've been seeing, um, you know, whether it's from um, the banks or with the transfer wises or things like that, even when they've grown to quite big scale, they've been able to be like, oh, it's fine, we've already got contingency plans and we're already been feeling flexible enough that it wouldn't hit us as badly so i don't really think that brexit would have hit it that bad it's i mean the complexion of brexit and 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 how we understand it from when we're recording now to when we go out on monday might be completely different (laughs) anyway it it is important because um i mean there's a lot of data transfer considerations how um data is being stored etc and also there could be um fluctuations in currency that we may or may not be able to predict so i probably they probably wait till next week i think i think that i think that i think that uncertainty will play in for sure well probably not this podcast our next story stays in the uk and looks at access pay um, which works to connect corporate back-end systems with global banking and financial service providers, getting a $9 million investment as part of their latest funding round. So um, Access Pay is based in Manchester, and the funding round was backed also by US investors True Ventures and Route 66, is one of the largest ever investments in a financial technology company in the north of England. Manchester is bidding to become a global tech hub in the north of England, um, you've got initiatives like FinTech North doing awesome work to drive that FinTech agenda um, in that space. Today, the company's technology is used by more than 500 corporate clients across the UK, including Barclays, the, e- the AA and ITV and processes over 40 million transactions a year. The firm says it will use the new funding to expand its sales, marketing and engineering teams and further develop its software platform. FinTech in the North. Well, I mean, I imagine it's, you know, nearly the largest, um, sorry, the largest funding rounds in the North of England have got to be to Atom, right? It's based in Durham (laughs) and it's got hundreds of millions. So that was a nice follow on. Um, For me, this is interesting because, interesting because it's kind of non-sexy fintech right it's cash management it's treasury which is 
not doesn't scan well and is very hard to explain to the average person on the front page of the Times or indeed, you know, Business Insider or Yahoo or whatever you're going to write about, you know, the publications we've worked for. Um, but it is the infrastructure, it is the back end, and it would make an awful lot of companies an awful lot easier if they could smooth out this process. So yeah, it's not sexy and yeah, it doesn't scan well in the media, but actually I suspect we're going to see even more funding to this kind of company. And there's such a need for someone to do the plumbing and own it and do it well. Yeah, exactly. It's not all about the glamorous, sexy side of fintech, is it? Yeah, I mean, Treasury, um, I, I did a report on this a couple of years ago, but something like 70% of companies still use spreadsheets to manage their, their Treasury you know, systems. They're trying to where their money is, where it's coming out, all this kind of stuff. Spreadsheets. I mean, God help you if you're trying to run a company <laughs> with like, you know, even this is up to like 10, 20 million of turnover. Human error, de- servers falling over, disk getting wiped. It just terrifies me. So, you know, the more you can automate those processes and the more that you can actually also in- introduce efficiencies in terms of cash management, and savings and investings and holdings. It's great. Well, as a northerner who went to Manchester Uni, I'm obviously a massive supporter of this story. Um, I think, you know, over the last decade or so, there's been great investments in infrastructure in the Northwest, and it's only improving. And, you know, every week you hear a different success story outside of London, like um, Scotland FinTech has tripled in the last 12 months. Absolutely. Last week on the show, you guys were talking about Chetwood Financial. Monzo have announced they're opening an office in Cardiff, obviously wildfire there already. You know, there is, there is that... Re- there is the bubble that's increasing the bubble that's increasing in size outside of London and I think it can only be a good thing absolutely I think uh, we have a cadre of entrepreneur accelerator hubs around the country and one of our key centers is in Manchester for fintech in particular um, our accelerator hubs cover all industry but in terms of the fintech and I've met with some of those guys just a couple of months ago they're actually doing some really exciting and really interesting things and completely agreed so we're doing obviously a lot of things in Scotland as well and uh, we hosted a, a fintech Scotland event where the um, I believe a trade in space won a fintech fund that we gave up. And I think they're being approached by NASA now to talk about some things. So, um, absolutely some really exciting and interesting things. And I totally agree that it's not necessarily always the customer facing things that are the most, um, uh, that drive the most value. Sometimes yeah. it's just simple automation. And what's great and about that is that it shows that there's also an appetite from VCs to invest in that type of yeah, fintech. Absolutely. So we spoke to Access Pay CEO Anish Kapoor to find out more about what they will use this money for and what US investment into a Manchester company means for the impact of fintech in the north of the UK. Really, it's just about doing more more of the same. So the business will, will double in size. Uh, so uh, in terms of number of people, so we have about 60 staff at the moment that will double to 120. For us, we need that to help support the, the rapid growth that we're seeing. Uh, you know, the rate of customer acquisition is, is increasing very rapidly. Um, and we pride ourselves on uh, on giving a great service to those customers. So it's really important that we've got, you know, the, the right size of team to support that growing customer base. So I think we're we're blazing a trail for for Silicon Valley investment in uh, in in sunny Manchester. So so yeah, but, um, we already have two U.S. investors, uh, one East Coast, one West Coast. So what does this what does this say about about Manchester? Well, what we've seen over the last few years is actually a, a general trend in organisations who might have a head office in London, 
but actually, you know, an awful lot of the the, the sort of data operational staff, if you like, are, are based out in the regions, and increasingly that's Manchester. So, Manchester actually is a, is, a, is a huge hub. In fact, I think it's one of the biggest hubs in the country for, you know, uh, bank sort of back office payment processing. So it, it's it's not you know it's not hugely well known, but it, you know, pretty much all of the banks have a, a lot of their core. Uh, back office processing teams based up here so it, it already is you know a, a big sort of fintech hub if you like what it doesn't have necessarily is a lot of that kind of consumer sort of b2c sort of fintech startup buzz that london has but really what we're seeing and what we're sort of piggybacking on is that actually there's an awful lot of sort of b2b uh, payments expertise here uh, and i think what you will start to see now is 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 probably more uh, VCs, you know, more investment, uh, you know, looking around Manchester um, because they've kind of seen what we're doing here and some of the talent that we're tapping into. Our next story comes from The Telegraph and looks at Tandem's IPO plans. So Digital Bank Tandem has unveiled plans to float on the stock market within the next five years. Tandem said an initial public offering would make sense and that there was clearly potential for multiple unicorn valuations in the digital banking space as evidenced by recent capital raises. Tandem product and marketing director Matt Ford said we want to build this customer-centric business and then an IPO makes perfect sense having the public buy into that business and grow it further. So I quite like how that quote works quite cyclically. Are we going to be cynical or do we actually believe what Matt's saying? I think they might well IPO at some point, but I'm with Liana. Like, I mean, why would, this is one of these, like a little bit, like when Monzo said, we're going to go to the US at some point, maybe in the future, perhaps. And it became kind of the headline. It's a similar kind of story. Give us some money. Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, Tandem have sort of, they were off to a bit of a slow start, but they say they've got 500,000 customers now. I don't know how many of those have come from the Harrods book um, that they bought, but um they also, you know, have announced their expansion to Hong Kong with a partner. So, you know, they are they are making progress and they are, you know, starting to build up some steam. Um, it just, I, I'm like Leanna, a little bit cynical when companies that are this young and have, you know, only so much traction behind them start talking about an IPO. Like, look at Funding Circle. Look at how long it took them. Look at how much money they Absolutely. had to make and how many customers they had to have before they even thought about it. I always have alarm bells whenever there's a focus just on customer growth, but not really all the extra numbers. It's very, very easy to, I mean, especially when it comes to Finto, when it comes to tech companies or, you know, even like the snaps of the world, even at that scale, is that if it's all... If it's all focused on just customer numbers and growth, but that sh- that's almost like trying to negate the fact of like how much is that profitable? Can mm-hmm. you actually get some sales from it? It doesn't really matter. It's like saying, oh, I've given away a million things for free and yeah. not making any money. Then how, if there's an IPO, it's going to be even worse in order for that to then, you know, have any breathing room to make those changes or strategic changes to make it profitable in the end. Yeah, I think they've done, I'd say they've done really well this year by, I think six new products is it that they've launched and really looked at where are other fintechs not targeting people. So credit cards to people that might not normally get credit cards, cash back on credit cards, et cetera. And that cash cash back credit card was a hook, right? Like that's going to grab people's attention. But I think in the same way to Atom, uh, I think Tandem is another one that had to admit um, that they got it wrong initially and kind of had to go back to basic. I think they tried to launch too many products initially and then tried to scale all of those products and that just became too difficult and decided to go in on a single product with a hook 
and sort of tried to scale out from there. They've introduced the sort of PFM elements on top of that and obviously have grown their customer base more quickly than they were expecting. Uh, well, than they said they were expecting. Sure. I mean, again, you know, it is, I mean, I, I'm, I think what what annoys me here is the fact they talked about an IPO. If they talked about their customer growth, they talked about the speed at which they'd ramped up products, they talked about how, you know, some of those products are different to what their competitors are offering, I would have had more interest in them. And exactly as Anna says, if you've got 500,000 people with a credit card, but only 25,000 of them are actually using the credit card, then they're not really your customers. They're just people who have a piece of plastic in their sock drawer at home. And of course, what was buried down in the article and it was buried down in the article because it doesn't make headlines, is Matt also said that you kind of read the market as you go. So <laughs> it's, it's as non-committal as it comes. Finn. I'm going to move us on to our next story, which comes from Morning Star. Challenger Bank Tide has partnered with ClearBank to bid for a share of the RBS £775 million fund aimed at increasing competition in Britain's business banking sector. Tide and ClearBank have jointly applied for a grant worth up to $120 million from Pool A of the Capability and Innovation Fund that forms part of RBS's Alternative Remedies Package. If successful, the grant will allow Tide and ClearBank to develop advanced business current accounts and products for small and medium-sized enterprises in the UK. Wincy, I'm probably going to throw to you on this one. There's some really great quotes in the article as well from Tide CEO Oliver Prill, but it'd be great to get your thoughts on this one. So... This fund was a part of our remedies. You know, it was something that we were asked to to do, and we've set up, and it, it is being managed uh, by a government body. Yep. So um, we're not meant to have um, much say, <laughs> rightly so. Um, the whole idea behind it is to increase competition, and if they are successful, there there are many other. Um, challenger banks, I believe, who have applied for those funds, then the best of luck to, to all of them. There are four different pools for mm-hmm. different levels of funding that they can ask for. So it looks like they've gone for pool A, which is the biggest one. Um, and, and, but also has more limitations in terms of numbers of grants that it will give. Yeah. I mean, for me, the interesting thing about this story is, um, is that tired of working with ClearBank. So Tide have always said they never want to build their own infrastructure. I mean, so far, but they did have a change of CEO and they've they've done their own changes recently. So, and anything may change in the future. But they've always said they don't want to build their own infrastructure. They want to focus on the the customer facing element. They want to make sure that that user experience is brilliant and all the features that their features and whatever else their customers want are there. Um, for me, the interesting thing here is the decision to, to to marry themselves to ClearBank in such a public way. Now, ClearBank really interests me as like one of the new banking entrants that have gone, again, the really non-sexy way. They went the really expensive, really hard, very complicated way. And have so far, I've been making a success of it as far as I can tell. Um, and I quite like the idea that they're partnering with Tide here to give, you know, to give themselves more... Um, Publicity is probably the wrong word, but to gain a wider awareness of who they are and what they do. Um, and for me, I like the idea of like startup partnering with startup. I like the idea of a marriage of two new entrants. And I think that they really, they really could do well. Um, whether they win the money or not, I think it's quite a good, good move for the pair of them. Agreed. I think we've, we've covered this, um, we've covered this on the, on the show quite a few times. I think one of the, uh, the criticisms or the challenges that has that has come up against is that it's not just challenges that are going in for these uh, these tranches, is it? I mean, there's a lot of big name high street banks that are trying to get access to these as well, and there's some great 
quotes from um, Tide CEO Oliver Prill about, it would be a mistake to give all of the top prizes in the RBS alternative remedies package to high street banks to do more of the same. So what do you guys think of that? From my point of view, the money should go where it benefits the user the most. So if that's a balance of supporting infrastructures that need updating as well as opportunities that are pushing the industry forward, then that's a good thing, right? Because it was taxpayers' money in the first place. Mm-hmm. So why not have that balance? I think for me, I mean, I've always said if it introduces more competition, then I don't really mind who wins. But there is a little bit of me that really wants to fin- like a, like a partnership like this to do it. Like, I mean, it is both and that's sides. That's why of you're at eleven F. I'm a di- natural diplomat. What can I say? It's the analyst in me. Um, but no, I I I, li- I like I like the story, and I would like to see something like this one. But um, I think there has been there's been an awful lot of sort of snide remarks, and, and that yeah. kind of has marred it a little bit for me as well. Some uh, that you know. Um, I think Anne Bone from Starling had some sure. things to say as yeah. well about some of the big big guys entering the pool. And I think that's kind of not in the spirit of the game, guys. If you want more competition, you want more competition. And the competition has the same rules for everybody. It's not like Santander are getting an advantage over Starling. Like the rules are the rules. So, it, it, you know, there's one occasion where I think maybe having the big bank behind them isn't necessarily going to help the high street banks. They're not going to win because they've got more money because that's not how it works. In fact, if anything, that would count against them. I think this is, um, this is an interesting market. The SME market is where we, uh, it's ripe for improvement. I think uh, it's been talked about for for a while now. It'll be interesting to see, well, what is, who does come up with the best experience for those small business customers? Because they are time poor. You know, more than 90% of them are sole traders, single owned entities. They are one man bands, you know, who, to be frank, aren't that interested in finances. I mean, if you uh, open a cupcake shop, you're interested in making cupcakes. <laughs> you're not really all that and, interested and, and, in the, and uh, in the other side. And Tide were one of the first movers in this space. They're one of the fastest growing in this space, and they've got a proven track record. So I think, to Sarah's point, actually, maybe this marriage between um, Tide and ClearBank can start to bring back some of that romance and you know, that's good. The more good. romance, the better. Yeah. Do you know what? That's a lovely sentiment on which to take <laughs> us to the break. <laughs> Sam afford the latest smartphone while she's at university. It must cost her parents a fortune to send her there. Oh, she's fine. She can just borrow the cash and pay it back when she bags a high-powered graduate job. Well, the tuition fees alone must be nearly £30,000. Well, she'll be earning a lot more than that after a couple of years. But imagine starting your career with £60,000 worth of debt. Hmm. Yeah, you could buy plenty of smartphones with that. Millennials. Future consumers or debt slaves. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash join us. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. 
So, the finalists of the British Bank Awards 2019 have now been released. We're very proud to say that we've been nominated for Consultancy of the Year, so thank you to everybody who nominated us. Last year's awards saw the likes of Starling Bank, Money Farm, Bud and Wise Alpha receive great accolades, and we would really love to join them and be crowned Consultancy of the Year. If you love the work that we do at 11FS, then we'd love to have your vote. Just head over to bit.ly forward slash 11FS 2019. So that's bit.ly forward slash 11FS 2019 to give us your vote. Okay, on with the show. And we've asked you guys to start submitting some questions for us and you delivered. So we thought it was about time we gave you some answers. This week's question comes from Benjamin O'Connor at FIS in Jacksonville, Florida. Funnily enough, home of our very own Sam Moll. His question is, which geographical markets do you see emerging as fintech hotspots for investment in 2019 and beyond? And is there merit in the claim that less developed countries are adopting new technologies faster than developed countries as they are not hindered by legacy infrastructure? I guess if I were to pick up on the, the, the second part of the question, I think what we've seen more in less developed countries is tech being used to actually bring people into the formal financial system. So what we've seen with M-Pesa, for example, in Kenya, and, and, and also, for example, um, Google Pay in, in India. So with particularly their ultrasonic um, payments where you've got 300, I think, million smartphones, but most of them are entry level and don't have Bluetooth or NFC. I'm not sure I want to give FIS any insight, actually. Um, but, you know, give Thank you for your question, question, Benjamin O'Connor, moving on. <laughs> um, talking about investment, I think it's, I mean, the obvious answer to the investment question is Asia. Um, but I think also there are bits of Europe which are starting to pick up pace. We're starting to see, as we've talked about already, US money coming into Europe, which it's been slow to happen, but it is starting to happen now. We're seeing places outside of the usual, outside of London. Sure attracting the money um the interesting thing for me about the less developed countries is that yes there is huge opportunity there but the opportunity is smaller and requires scale so a lot of the opportunities that you've just talked about there require getting lots and lots of people to use the technology before you can make any money off it now investors generally don't like that they generally don't like the idea of having to get 500 million people on board to spend one pound every month in order to make some revenue so that they can get return on their investment so i think when we're looking at the next like 2019 the next year or the next i don't know 11 and a half months i don't think we're going to see much investment in you know developing countries or certainly in developing economies um i think it's going to be more more of the europe focus is and and asia obviously asia's always the answer yeah, I think what's really interesting is that when it comes to, you know, they don't have the legacy infrastructure, but what comes with the lack of legacy infrastructure is the lack of regulation that is, a, is able to adapt to it or maybe government policy to understand it. So with the big risks in different markets that you've seen, whether it's, you know, in India, Nigeria, um, in APAC, or especially somewhere like China, is that, you know, you can grow to scale, you can have these amazing companies, and you can see this growth or re something really innovative, but they sometimes, because of the environments that they're in, are more susceptible to knee-jerk changes in a rule that would never happen in that quick succession that you would see in maybe European countries. And that is what is more stifling, I suppose, in combination with the profitability side. And that's what I find is a bit, 
you know, on the fence of. Well, WeChat announced this week about their social credit system, where you get scored on your consumption, compliance and other behaviour, like arriving on time. Um, but also, hello, said, hello, Black Mirror. <laughs> it also said that it's a possibility that you can score being affected by your friends. So if your friends have bad credit scores, then maybe your credit score goes down. But um, see, it's I do just... not want that world. Looking <laughs> <laughs> so around the table mad. being like, do I have to unfriend Laura on Instagram? Like, what's I feel bad giving anyone a four on Uber, <laughs> let alone like if we have to roll this out. So, you know. <laughs> but it is that bit about your other behaviour, like you being more socially conscious and how does that already affect your financial status and... Yeah, that's a. I mean, it's that's a scary dystopian world. That, to Liana's point, I don't really want to be part <laughs> of. But that said, I do like this um, uh, listener question. But so, don't forget, you can submit your own question to podcast at eleven fs dot com or via Twitter, and yours might be the next one that we read out. Okay, let's get back to the news, and with that, head back to the US. So, our next story comes from Reuters. Um, and is to do with the Federal Reserve having reservations. Go on. About fintech. Thank you for that. And apologies. Um, The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, more affectionately known, of course, as the OCC, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, also more affectionately known as the FDIC, are exploring granting federal bank-like licenses We'll come to Sarah in a minute to understand what that could possibly mean (laughs) to tech driven firms that offer financial services, but the Federal Reserve does have reservations. Federal licenses would allow fintech firms, which currently operate under a patchwork of state rules, something again, we've talked about a lot on the show to reduce the regulatory costs and expand into regions, into new regions and products. Many Fed officials fear these firms lack robust risk management controls and consumer protections that banks have in place. However, fintech firms say they are reluctant to invest heavily in nationwide expansion without access to the payment systems, settlement services, and other tools, but the central bank has yet to decide whether or not to let them in. So this sounds like deadlock, but surely you can't stand in the way of progress forever. Well, the Americans think they can. Um, the, uh, the, the point is that this is a, this is just headbutting between it's don't, don't stamp on my ground. That's my territory. I say this, you say that. So it's kind of the OCC and the FDIC want to license fintechs federally. Most of the individual states say, no, we want to have control over who gets to operate in our state. Thank you very much. And they're all suing each other. Um, the, the Federal Reserve is, you know, um, one of the most conservative of the, I suppose, regulatory bodies, if you like, in the US. Um, it is, it really is standing in the way of progress and it is kind of unnecessary. So if you look at the UK, we are, our, our infrastructure, if you like, is open to fintechs, you know, um, the faster payments backs, you know, they're, they're all accessible by fintechs, which have secured licenses and have gone through, you know, the proper procedure. But um, faster payments and Vocalink, which was running it at the time, actually brought in new rules a few years ago to allow non-banks to access their payment systems because they wanted more competition. And because it's completely anti-competitive to make a startup pay somebody else to access a system, um, which, you know, there's no reason if they're already licensed and, un- and unregulated by a regulatory body, they shouldn't be able to access themselves. So and that you, regulation point is important. Like in the UK, yeah. I think we're more open from a regulatory perspective. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we do have... The, pe- the people who are accessing faster payments are the likes of TransferWise, Starlink, you know, the banks, that they are regulated. But... Um, I don't understand why, if the OCC has the power to regulate 
banks and it decides that you know it's and it's not going to be easy like varo money said that they were the first one to have the application considered two years after the occ had even suggested it so it's not gonna happen quickly um if they're regulated by the occ which many of the big banks are as well why wouldn't they be allowed access to the infrastructure um i find it i've it's a lot of petty squabbling, basically, in the so, US. <laughs> um, some, some officials worry that direct access to the payment network would mean that a fintech firm's collapse, a major IT stumble, or a cyber breach could spread risk across the system or hurt consumers. That sounds like scaremongering. Oh, because because JP that's Morgan, never happened yeah, in banking, exactly. ever. Because JP has Morgan it. has never had any of those <laughs> problems, or Wells Fargo, or Bank of America, or anybody else you want to mention. It's... I just get so fed up with the Americans. I want to bang their heads together. As All the American on this podcast. <laughs> hey, Wincy. <laughs> feel like I should say something to defend my people. But um, uh, in terms of the, uh, I think it's, well, what you've brought up is a common issue, I think, in, in the American banking system where it's so fragmented because of the state intervention. And um, and that's good and bad in terms of, uh, on the one hand, you're giving the states the control to exert uh, over their local communities and be able to create policies that um, are helping their uh, communities. However, the, the world has kind of moved on. You know, the world is growing smaller and it and it is this um, strange place where no matter what town you you go to, there will be that town's bank, mm. you know, somewhere there. And they all don't have mobile apps or, or they're trying to get together to start doing mobile apps. And, and that's where they are. So on, until you start kind of pulling it together, there you are stifling progress. And not just necessarily for fintech companies, but some of these little banks. So I have a, a summer home over in Bradley Beach in New Jersey, tiny little town. And there is a Bradley Beach Bank on the corner, and there there is uh, right next to the Asbury Park branch, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it is um, something I think that is necessary, and if you regulate it, it's probably better because you can create a safer kind of guidelines. Now, now, however, you would need the regulator to be a bit more progressive yep. in how they and regulate. Proactive. It's the stubbornness that for not wanting to work together. For my, that really offends me. It's not that they shouldn't be; it shouldn't be regulated, and it's not that there shouldn't be um, protections put in place for local communities. I do understand what the points you're making there. It's just the fact that they won't even sit around the same table and talk about it. Yeah, I mean, we could they look at sort of Europe as a bit of an example of you know we still have those network of banks in places like Italy where people still have their local banking, mm. but we are looking at PSD2 and open banking and bringing that across markets and across places and how do could we could they help us you know some states still it takes 10 days to clear a back clear a check it's all us surely there's a, <laughs> surely sometimes there's a you can pay extra for, for, for it to clear sooner yeah. ah. but, well so uh, apparently no, they you, move the paper a little bit faster over the counter <laughs> Building so building on the um on the regulation point so many of these um these fintechs are accusing the regulators of leaving them hanging so with radio silence as to whether or not they can or can't get access does that sound like the regulator just doesn't really know how to respond to these guys uh, yeah. Yes, I think I think that partly is, but I mean the the Fed is, is such a big organization. Again, you don't talk about oil tankers. Like the Federal Reserve is not just a Federal Reserve either. It's I can't remember how many there are. I'm looking at you and see, but there's kind I of I just don't think <laughs> they know what they they want to do with it. I don't. Yes. To be very very honest, I I really don't think that they, as well, really grasp what 
half of the companies are. It's, it's not saying that they're not smart. It's just that it is a whole different world and trying to grasp everything from, you know, the, the fintech payment side all the way to maybe all these different products that is so alien. I mean, you just have to look at how they're responding to stuff like cryptocurrency. They have no idea what's going on mm. and they come from a very traditional economist, old school banking background and even trying to get into the digital payment side. I mean, you just have to look at the infrastructure, the fact that like, you know, across America, you know, where, whether it comes to chip and pin or whether, you know, using checks Absolutely. still, it's, you know, they, it, it is very, very, um, I suppose, unitized. Like it's, it, it's very fragmented in their understanding of how the rest of the world is approaching and it. And that's a perfect segue onto our next story, which comes from Bloomberg and is talking about European mobile banking unicorns like N26, backed by investor Peter Thiel, are heading stateside. So N26 has raised $300 million to fund its expansion, giving it a $2.7 billion valuation. Uh, N26 is a German banking app with 2.3 million customers across Europe that reckons it can grab about half that in the US within one to two years. Sarah's already alluded to the fact that Monzo, Revolut, and others are also claiming, are also aiming to break America. Um, but we've also touched on how regulation is sort of holding back the fintech movement over there. Do we think this is going to drive a bit of a shift? I just want to point out that I looked it up and there are 12 banks that comprise the Federal Reserve, and I feel better now that I've remembered that. Um, <clears throat> just. I can't handle it if I can't remember a stat. Um, I think I, I think the uh, European banks have got a mountain to climb before they succeed in the US. I think that by the time they've overcome the hurdles of regulation and uh, understanding the customers, I think that the Americans will have got there first. Because it's not like there isn't innovation in the US. I think it has just been stymied by, as we said, a lot of it regulation. I don't think there is a lack of innovation or will or customer sentiment. I mean, you look at Chime, it's got 2 million customers, I think now. I, I, I don't think by the time they get there, I mean, they might get some customers, but I don't think they're going to have like the whitewash they think they're going to. I think, sorry, as, a, as the American, I feel like I need to talk a lot about America. Um, uh, there's, I, I think there, What's really important is how much do they really understand the customers there? Um, and, you know, it was probably from me moving to the UK 10 years ago that realizing that British English is very different, in fact, to American <laughs> English. And actually, you, um, the British have very different personalities as well. Um, uh, and learning how to navigate that. And I think that is, um, uh, and I've heard a lot of fintech say this, where we're going to expand to America or, or even cross, you know, the Americans coming, but it's we're really going to go to Europe. How do you localize that offering? Because it is different. It is different. People look at money differently. Like, for example, I came here. I did not understand what an overdraft was. I did not understand. So you the know. <laughs> UK, in the UK, we use an overdraft very differently than anywhere else in the world. Like we extra use money. it as an extension of <laughs> our extra account. Money. Exactly. That's my money. That's and not how, that's looking not at how everyone people like, they're live. crazy. You're yeah. getting yourselves into more debt. What is this? So, so, so it's, um, it's a completely different kind of frame of mind, how you look at money, how, how you're brought up on it, how you're taught uh, and everything. And if they can get a local presence uh, where they have people who, who understand those customers infrastructure, then, then they have a chance. It's kind of the same thing about Google go or Uber going to China and expecting to just take a model and succeed. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a global mistake that fintechs make is that are not understanding and people make generally is not un understanding that financial behavior is so culturally unique to you could have different financial behavior. You know, you see different financial behavior within Spain, different in Spain and Portugal, for goodness yeah. sake. So, you know, you move into another continent, of course, it's going to be different. And I think people 
constantly and consistently misunderstand that. Sorry, Lucy, I cut you off. <laughs> and I was just wondering whether that would they would then be looking at partnerships to people, to the bigger networks that do understand that market. You know, there are successes like uh, Marcus, for example, uh, instance is a great mm-hmm. success story yeah, from yep. the US that's yep. come over to the UK recently and obviously Amazon have been making great inroads in some of their innovation with the underbanked so would it be that some of our startups actually move over and partner with some of the bigger networks like a Wells Fargo or a I mean possible yeah I, I mean like I think like picking up on the N26 I mean what I find really um, you know, trustworthy with them and talking about the cultural change, how people deal with money. I mean, they're a German banking app in a country that is so obsessed with physical cash and that doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon. And yet they've managed to really grow a really innovative product in a country where, again, like cash is king and it still is. And even if you're in Berlin and I was there recently as well, that, you know, it doesn't matter whether you go to a bar or a restaurant, you still have to check if they accept card. But they, you know, the ability to, um, you know, be born out country, but then, um, do something innov- innovative and then partner with the right people in order to understand local markets. I think that's very mature in the fintech sense rather than going, we're going to go it alone and that's it. And actually N26 have successfully expanded outside of Germany very successfully. They've got huge numbers mm. of customers in, in France and Italy now as well. So, I think I think you're right that I think if anybody can do it, it's probably them. And they've actually had boots on the ground in the US for, I think, at least 12 months, if not 18 months. So they're definitely, you know, working working things out before they go go all in, in all yeah. guns blazing. But. Yeah, and that partnership point's a good one in terms of like de-risking that sort of entry strategy as well. So I love that. Once again, to get a US perspective on this, we spoke to our MD of America, Sam Moll, to find out his thoughts on this. Let's hear from him now. Okay, from a U.S. perspective, let's start with a reality check. Most of the big banks reported earnings this week, and based on what I read and heard, I think they're doing okay. The six biggest U.S. banks have never had a $100 billion year until 2018. The big six, now it's outside of Morgan Stanley, who reports later this week, they reported a combined profit of $111 billion for 2018. I mean, damn. $111 billion. J.P. Morgan and Bank of America both had record years, while Goldman and Citi had their most profitable years since the financial crisis. Even Wells Fargo, I mean Wells, who can't get out of their own way, they reported net income for the fourth quarter of $6.1 billion in 2018 compared with $6.2 billion in 2017, so really barely a dip. So look, from a challenger bank perspective, let's, let's take the big banks and set them aside. I think who really needs to be nervous are those mid-tier banks and the community banks when you look at what's coming. But the challenge here in the U.S. is getting account holders isn't, it just isn't enough. Stating you have a million users on a waiting list or a million users that have signed up for an account, that's wonderful marketing hype. It gets you articles in TechCrunch, but that's not enough. Actually getting customers to actually deposit actual money repetitively is what's key. So the holy grail is direct deposit. I mean, generating income based on interchange fees isn't going to fly in the U.S. FX really isn't a major factor here. So in order to survive beyond the hype and articles, the challenger banks need to generate revenue from multiple sources like money made from deposits and loans or revenue share from other FI partners. 
And customer acquisition costs in the U.S. are pretty dang high. You know, it's one thing to market on the tube or buses in London because you do have that captive audience. So how do you replicate that model at scale in a diverse geography like the U.S.? I mean, that's going to be an interesting hurdle to get over. Do I believe the challenger banks, both from Europe and here in the U.S., can make a dent? Of course I do, yes. But how? Um, Let me quote the lovely and articulate and brilliant Jason Bates by providing intelligent, contextual services that actually improve their customers' financial lives and help them achieve their financial goals. I think that's obviously, with the technology, part of the secret sauce. Our next story comes from Finextra. So Interbank Payment Network Swift is pushing an API standard which will enable banks to provide instant loan approvals for customers at the point of sale. PayLater is an instant online payment facility which offers customers the ability to use traditional bank loan financing to pay for goods purchased online. The Transactional Finance API provides merchants with a single standard connection to member banks around the world, avoiding the need for multiple costly implementations. Swift members believe the introduction of the interface will help the banking industry transition into the world of digital platforms. Lofty ambition, but we've seen a real move towards placing credit at the point of need for consumers and significant innovation from the likes of Klarna, Affirm, DeVito, lots of others. Um, What does this new API standard mean for these guys? I think this is a really interesting move from Swift. And um, I'll be honest with you, I haven't necessarily kept up with all their innovations because I get slightly lost in the ISO standards. Yeah. And, then and these are all in line with standards. I can't remember what they meant. Um, for me, I think this is an interesting one because it's a service that Swift has designed that banks will then offer their merchant customers, so far as I understand it. So B2B2C. Like, yeah, um, which actually feels like an interesting move from Swift. I don't feel yeah. like we've seen an awful lot of that from them. Um, Agreed. And it's probably a sign that the the banks are actually starting to feel the heat from the likes of um, fintech players like DeVito and, and Klarna yeah. in particular or, or in the, the UK. Swift is feeling the heat and yeah. doesn't want doesn't want another tech player to come in and, and disintermediate yeah. them there. Yeah. Um, the other thing for me will be whether or how the banks can work out whether the customer the merchant is selling to is credit worthy. Does that make sense? So like if you're Klarna um, or a firm. So at the moment, um, I think it's still pretty standard. So I know a lot of the big banks already play in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, and they still rely on the legacy credit bureaus. Oh, um, uh, yeah, but affirms, affirms, um, sort of differentiator is that they've built a proprietary decisioning engine. So that's, um, an algorithm underpinned by machine learning that pulls in data, data points from like two or 300 different data sources, the way they combine them. So social data, um, debt to income ratio, et cetera, et cetera. Um, even the device that a, um, an applicant is applying on. So if you own an Apple device, you're more likely to, uh, you're, you're less likely to default. Um, so I think they've built out, um, that tech side, but my question on this is, um, actually, are they now losing that edge because Swift can just make it easy for the big banks to originate credit without having to do any of that? I think it'll be interesting because um, one of the companies that's been really successful is Afterpay in Australia. Yeah. And um, and they're everywhere, meaning you can get 
two weeks are And they've acquired free. someone in the UK, right? So they're coming to the UK pretty soon. Exactly. They, they've made um, notes about that. And what's interesting about them is they've just literally based it on, they've created their own credit decisioning engine. They've uh, based it on customer behavior. So you have your afterpay kind of account. Um, they give you a smaller limit and it's for small value goods. It's for like maybe a hundred quid or... or yeah, or, it's or very much targeted at millennials. Exactly. And then, and then, but over time, if they see that you're constantly paying that back so that limit increases etc so kind of like really old school bank yeah. credit if you, if you think about it and if swift is making this room this this move to make that easier that'll be interesting to see um probably what the banks would do but, but more interestingly i think is where there's been the most adoption is at the point of sale. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's what I was going to say as well is that Afterpay, well, I was just over in Australia and before that was in New Zealand and Afterpay is how everybody pays for everything. Yeah. It's baffling to me, but but, but it's, it's kind of, you know, in the US it's just a credit card uh, as opposed to a debit card. The UK is a debit card. In Australia and <coughs> New Zealand now it's Afterpay. Um, or if you look at Klarna, they're actually driven by customer adoption going for the brand. So seeing Afterpay, I'm going to use that Klarna, I'm going to use that as a method of payment. And that's how they've succeeded. And I imagine, I don't know much about a firm, but it's, it's similar it's a customer facing so what's interesting about a firm is um i think post 2008 um the big uh consumer lenders to people of below perfect credit i think it's chase um bank of america and city or chase wells fargo and city um their response to the 2008 crisis was just completely constrict credit so um availability of credit to those types of consumers went to zero um, a firm was created, w- was founded by Max Levchin, so one of the original PayPal mafia. And despite the fact that he'd already exited on PayPal and made like m- more money than any of us can dream of, he couldn't get a, a lease on a, a-, a car finance because um, his credit was less than perfect. So he was like, all right, well, we're going to change this. So their tech first model is all about understanding affordability, not uh, credit risk. But what I was... What- so that is an interesting story. But what I was going to say was that like Swift isn't a consumer-facing brand. So this is a great API, but the banks now have to band together and create a consumer-facing brand, which merchants can push to the customer. So they start using this rather than Klarna or Afterpay. Yeah, and I think the risk comes from the merchant side because the merchant no longer has to um, integrate, say, Afterpay and Klarna and a firm to access all of those consumers. They just integrate this one great. API and then they can talk to all the different banks. But how do I know as a customer that I can use this? What's it called? How do I sure. find it? Do yeah, I just absolutely. Up and buy my, I don't know, what's, you know, expensive pressure, my new MacBook. And they're like, hey, you could have a loan from, you know, you can you can buy this on, you know, uh, installment payments from, is it my bank? Is it like First Direct will let you do it? Is it like, um, I don't know. So it's, like, I mean? it's kind of, I don't know how I as a messaging like just isn't out there. Because I yeah, mean, like agreed. for us in like the bubble, it's like, it's, I mean, I, I love the stories like Klarna and things like that. It's like, oh, that sounds fantastic on, you know, and like, you know, it does prompt you to maybe buy something. And it's, it seems to a lot of these companies, it's more in the like subconscious of the consumer. But I do think it's time that, you know, like you've rightly pointed out, like it needs to, the messaging needs to get better and the options need to be presented in a more palatable way for the end user in order for that growth to happen. And Klarna focused on end-to-end journeys. So it's not just about that transaction at the point of sale. You can then track the delivery of your product. You can initiate the returns. You can look at all, you know. So it's consumer-driven. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's not merchant-driven. I mean, And the difference is Klarna has that relationship with the consumer as well as with the retailer. And the beauty of the afterpay experience is that it doesn't hit your credit score. No. So how does this API work and does it hit the consumer credit if, if we're going to credit bureau? Absolutely. 
I'm going to move want us- more information. Yeah. <laughs> Swift, hit us up. I'm going to move us on to our and finally story. And it's a great story this week. I don't think we could and finally on anything else. It comes from Yahoo. And Woo-hoo. it's about <laughs> Greg's going vegan and getting a boost from millennials. So Free Trade, a stock trading app popular with UK millennials, saw a spike in interest in Greg's shares after the bakery chain announced the launch of its vegan sausage rolls. For the uninitiated, are there uninitiated? Greg's is a British bakery <laughs> chain. A rock. Yeah, <laughs> Greg's is a British bakery chain known for its traditional meat-heavy menu announced it was launching a vegan sausage roll at the start of the month. This is my favorite line in all of the show notes. The launch sparked a huge (laughs) amount of conversation on Twitter and backlash from conservative commentators such as Piers Morgan. However, the move appears to have been popular with millennials, young investors, and their money behind the Greggs after the announcement. According to Free Trade, you saw a spike in investments after the launch of the vegan sausage roll. 2% of Free Trade's customers bought Greg's stock in the first week of January, but in an equivalent week in December, it was 0.2%. So that's quite a turnaround. I I, want to point out as well, or shout out if you like, that this article was written by um, Oscar, who Liana and I, I used to work with, and Liana now still works with at Yahoo. Yes, so yes, uh, Oscar (laughs) is our senior city correspondent at Yahoo Finance UK. um, I bet he didn't think he'd be writing about Greg's. (laughs) I don't know, Oscar. Yeah, he finds amazing, <laughs> amazing angles and stories. I mean, the fact that we were all talking about Greg's and this freaking sausage roll, sorry, vegan sausage roll that everyone's talking about, he managed to find a fintech angle. That's why I hired him. That's he's, he's, he's actually coming on the show in a few weeks, um, so we'll have to make sure he's uh, one of his stories in the show notes. Um, the, the, inter- the interesting fintech point of view, I mean, I, I love, I, I don't eat meat, so I love anything vegan. It's more choice, better for everybody, better for the have environment. Have you tried it? Fabulous. I haven't yet because they're all out of stock. That is true. Um, but the fintech perspective is really interesting to me on two points. One is that we're using like stock purchasing apps like Free Trade as now a way to measure uh, a certain demographic's interest. And the other is that the behavior we're seeing from the investors using Free Trade is not traditional investor behavior in the sense that you would certainly if you were a, a, had a, a low value portfolio, you would traditionally very much rely on somebody else to manage that for you. Whereas we're seeing an awful lot of uh, younger people and, and not really young people, but new entrants to investing, picking and choosing their stocks based on what appeals to their personal values. Yep. And that just shows to me um, this you know decision that people want to invest in, Greg's, uh, whether because they're vegan or whether because they like the idea of them being vegan or whether because they keep up the trend, whatever it is, People are, are investing in line with their own socio- socioeconomic values. And I think that's something we're and never going to see. And we're seeing a massive wealth. Me off there, Ross. Sorry, just but I was just. I'm going to finish my all I'm, doing, all I'm doing is like, um, is, is building on your point is that we're seeing a massive wealth transfer from like older generations to millennials. They have proven to be more sort of socially conscious in how they invest. Yeah, I but mean, also, I mean, I mean, from the business point of view, I mean, like uh, 100% on that. And, this is why I really, really love this Greg story because to me it's like the real synergy um, of um, understanding your consumer, understanding how society is changing, using technology, but then at the same time understanding that that new audience, that new consumer, that millennial, um, you know, that you know, unicorn millennial um, consumer that you want to tap into is using things in different ways. So with Greg's and obviously like the going vegan stuff, it's not just about them expanding you know their consumer base but also you see what happens with their stock because they are more socially conscious they are completely different to, to the you know old you know white male pale stale um you know consumer front 
And that is why it's been successful because the vegan sausage roll is very clever in the marketing side, but they've had literally years of building on this. This is like the latest in a long line. And we've seen that in their revenue growth and we've seen that in their stock. And once they made that pivot, it's gone up for the last three years. I think this kind of builds on this trend where people are starting to care a lot more about the products that they buy yeah, and where they come from and what, what's behind the ethos behind it. And that's something that um, people want to see more of. So them going vegan is quite a big move, bold move, because they are known for their meaty sausage rolls. But they're still doing the meat stuff. They're just understanding that there's like 3 million vegans in the country. Why not get all those people on board? But it's I just think they they know, like we know that yacht users love Greg's, but... Your users at Love Greg's love You've them the data to back it up. a hangover, and that's why they have their sausage roll. But it's January, and people aren't eat- drinking in January, so they need the healthy. Mm. Well, well. The <laughs> I think. I think that the, I think the vegan movement is. I mean, I think it is one that you know um, does is sparked every January and the January and all that kind of thing. But I think that actually we, we've seen like twenty percent increase in vegan purchases in supermarkets in the last twelve months. It's not that trend's not going away. Um, I think the the overall point is that it's a beautiful synergy of right time right place um marketing my god a greg's good at marketing everybody should yep. follow their twitter handle just because it's hilarious whether you eat sausage rolls or vegan sausage rolls otherwise it's just worth a laugh and you know as i said the kind of their demographic hitting that you know do care about we're going to invest we're going to go away and show our behavior and actually um w- People are going to, companies are going to have to wake up to exactly Wednesday's point that all of a sudden, not just young people, but, you know, everybody's starting to care more about what they're buying, where it comes from, what the end result is. And if they don't get, you know, their ducks in a row, they are going to be hit where it hurts, which is their returns, is their profit and their revenue. And that's the direct impact, I think, indirectly as well. I think consumers are driving or are forcing companies to behave in a more... Um, sustainable and responsible way in terms of how they invest. Um, sustainable investment is real. Um, you know, you've got ESG initiatives um, that are, you know, customers want to know that their um, companies are behaving in a way that's sustainable. And, and actually, when you look at how they interact with their environment, with all of their stakeholders, that actually now, as much as sort of annual or quarterly returns, is a really, really solid indicator of like the long-term profitability and the long-term sustainability of, of companies as well. I think to sum this up, we're all in favor of Greg's figures. Go Greg's. Control. 100%. We all and need to that, try. And on that note, this wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much to all our guests. Guys, where can people find out more about you? Let's start with you, Liana. Well, you can find me on Twitter on um, at Liana Brinded and also on Yahoo Finance UK. Lucy? Um, on Twitter at, at Lucy Wolf or with Yolt is at Get Yolt. Wincy? You can find me on Twitter at Wincy Wong or LinkedIn. And Sarah Kay? You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky or on Forbes if you're interested in my articles. How could you not be? And as for me, I'm at Ross Gallagher07 on Twitter or at Ross at 11fs.com. What do you think of today's stories? Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders. And don't forget, if you love the show, please do be sure to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.